people like to make snow angels. I like to make snow angel choirs. The entire choir of snow angels. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Reverse Christmas caroling. We're going to pull that. We may show up at your door sometime and uh, have a video camera rolling. And the rule is you have to start singing. We don't care if you can sing or not. We want you to be famous. We're going to look at the song, Oh Holy Night, uh, today. And this was written in 1847. It's kind of an interesting backstory. A local priest, uh, three weeks before Christmas, uh, decided that he wanted a poem written to Luke chapter 2. And so he had this parishioner who didn't come very often. In fact, he was kind of a hellraiser. And it was kind of, uh, it's ironic that he asked this guy to write this poem uh, about Luke chapter 2. His name was uh, Placide Capot. This is a French guy. This was in a French village. And so he decided to write this poem. And he's in a carriage ride and he writes and he considers the night uh, that Christ was born. And he writes this incredible pro- poem. So then he decides, well, I like my poem too much just for it to be a poem. It needs music. So he had this other friend. And, and by the way, uh, Placide Capot was not a Christ follower. In fact, a few years after he wrote this poem, he left the church completely. And started, uh, he got into this socialist uh, revolution thing. Well, before all of that happened, he goes to a friend of his who is also not a Christ follower, who is a Jewish man. So think about this. You got someone who's not a Christ follower. He writes the poem, the words to uh, O Holy Night. And then he goes to a Jew who doesn't celebrate Jesus as the Son of God, who doesn't celebrate the birth of Jesus as the Son of God, ask him to put it to music. They put it to music. It becomes this wonderful... Um, uh, Carol that we sing over and over, and three weeks later, they actually performed it on Christmas Eve in 1847. And then um, it, it caught on in the Catholic Church, it just kind of spread like wildfire, until somebody in the hierarchy figured out who it was that wrote the poem and who it was that wrote the music. And they declared that it is unfit for church services in France because of its lack of musical taste and total absence of the spirit of religion. But by this time, it had already swept across Europe. It had jumped the pond and it was in the United States and, and there was nothing that they could do about it. Another interesting fact is that this carol, about five decades later in 1906, a Canadian professor named Reginald Fessenden, 33, 33 years old, he did what many people thought was impossible. Kind of out of his garage, he made this generator and he figured out a way to plug in a microphone and he broadcast the very first AM broadcast in the history of the world on Christmas Eve 1906. And, and so can you imagine people who are only used to hearing these little, uh, you know, Morse code type thing, these signals coming in, all of a sudden they hear a voice. And here's what the voice says on 1906 Christmas Eve. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. He read the whole Luke account of the Christmas story. Then he busts out his violin and he plays O Holy Night on his violin. The first song broadcast over the AM radio waves in the history of the world was this song. And then he sang. He was supposed to have some help, but everybody else got stage fright, his wife and his assistant. So he plays and then he sings the last verse. And so that's kind of an interesting backstory. With that in mind, I want you to check out this version of the classic.
That's awesome, isn't it? That gets you, get your blood pumping a little bit, make you want to worship. Have you ever stopped to imagine what it must have been like on that holy night? Um, I think that we've passed way too many manger scenes. And we've kind of lost the wonder of what it was like that night when the Savior was born. And I think you've got to think through this whole scene. Okay, you got the baby Jesus, you got the Virgin Mary, you got Joseph, and the cattle are lowing. I have no idea what that means, but the, but the Christmas carol says, the cattle were lowing, right? Y'all look that up and tell me what that means later. Um, but there was, in, in the midst of this unsanitary environment, there's a teenage girl that was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And, and you know the neighbors scoffed at that one, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's how she's pregnant. And, and they had to get up from where they lived and travel somewhere between 80 and 120 miles to go register for this census so that they could be taxed. And so I, I was thinking about this. You know, if we were to get on a donkey, if, if, if I was to take Janie when she was pregnant, put her on a donkey and travel from here, it'd be like going to Ennis or the outskirts of Dallas if it was 120 miles just to sign your name on a piece of paper so that you can be taxed. That sounds like a ripoff to me, but anyway... I was thinking back, Caleb was born in 1995, and he was our first child. He was overdue by a week. Janie and I had been married a little over three years when he was born. And uh, I remember loading her up. Here's the deal. Back then, you know, they scheduled everything. I think they still do. He was overdue by a week, and so we had scheduled his birthday. We got to choose his birthday. Doctor said, you can have this day or this day. And Janie said, I like January 27th. So on a Friday morning, cold Friday morning, 4.30 a.m., I'm loading my very pregnant wife into a baby blue Taurus, and we're driving two or three miles to the South Arlington Medical Center. And, and can you imagine? That was rough enough. Can you imagine if I said, hey, baby, here's a donkey. Let's, uh, let's ride down to the hospital. Now, what if when we'd gotten to South Arlington Medical Center, what if they'd said, sorry, there aren't any rooms? Coincidentally, that's exactly what happened to us when we had Rachel. We went to Palestine Regional, got there, and they said, sorry, you're not scheduled for today. And Janie said, I'm in labor. I'm having the baby. And they went, oh, well, all the labor and delivery rooms were full. So they stuck her in a closet. We almost had, had Rachel, my baby girl, in a closet, in a storage closet. But I digress. Okay, back to the Caleb thing. Mary and Joseph, you know, they come to Bethlehem. Every room is taken in, in, in every house. Now, Bethlehem wasn't a huge city. There might have been, there's one, maybe two inns. We don't know that for sure. But back then, it was cultural to open up your home to people. But here's the thing. There were so many people coming back to Bethlehem, past residents, to the, to the place where they, their ancestors had been born, that they were registering. All the rooms were full. And so it probably was not a little barn. That's probably not where it was born. Scholars think it was probably more like a cave where the, the animals would come to, to take shelter when there was rough weather. And so in this unbelievably unsanitary place, she's giving birth uh, to, the, to the Son of God. And we're talking about no epidural... Can you imagine? She's probably a teenager. No epidural. And no angel. I don't think there was an angel, you know, sitting there touching her on the spine so that she didn't have... I think she was screaming. Ladies, y'all remember your first babies? I remember the night before Caleb was born, Janie rolls over and she says, I don't want to have a baby anymore. <laughs> she was so excited to be pregnant. She glowed. You know, she had that beautiful radiance about her. And then she's like, no, no. And I said, well, maybe we should have thought of this sooner. So we go in. Okay. So Janie got this epidural when we had Caleb. And because everybody, she's like, I do not want to feel Jack. And so they come in, they give her this epidural. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm a dude. I don't have a clue. And, and so they give her the epidural, and we're going through this whole thing. And I, I'm watching, you know, they have the little monitor thing on there. So I'm watching as the contractions happen. And that's kind of cool to watch that. Well, somehow in all of this stuff, about halfway through, you know, about a little before noon, she wiggles enough that the epidural falls out. By the time the anesthesiologist gets back in there, she's progressed too far to get the epidural, and she starts feeling the contractions. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very helpful. Um, I'm watching the little screen, and I'm going, hey, baby, the contraction started. And she goes, yes, I know. And she would close her eyes. You know, I would do my little helpful thing, and I would be breathing, you know, that whole thing. And I almost pass out, you know, because I'm trying to breathe too fast. And, and so I'm coaching her through, and we're having this great time. And... Uh, so the, I'm holding Janie's hand, and you know, every after every contraction, she'd open her eyes, she'd be fine. When the contraction would happen, she'd close her eyes and squeeze the snot out of my hand. But you know, I wasn't complaining; it was, it was all good. Well, the nurse comes in and and says, "Okay, here's the deal. Um, this is going to progress faster than we thought." See, the doctor comes in. His his literally his office is right across the parking lot, South Arlington Medical Center. He thought, you know, this was our first child, and they did the Pitocin drip. He thought that he had all day. He was going to see patients, scheduled them all day, and then he was just going to come by after work and, and deliver our child. He did not know that the epidural came out. So the nurse said, this is going to go a little faster. So here's what you do. She said, your job is when she's ready to push, you call me. And I said, how am I going to know that? And she said, you'll know. About, about 30, 45 minutes later, holding hands, she grips my hands in the middle of a contraction as God is my witness, veins popping out of her head, neck, everywhere. She goes, I need to push. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I've never heard this voice. I, I wondered if I should cast out a demon or what it was. And, and, and I, I almost fell off my chair. And I'm like, she needs to push. So I'm pushing the little nurse call button. And I said, she goes, yes, may I help you? I said, she needs to push, you know. And uh, she goes, well, tell her not to. I'm looking at the little box, and I said, and she's going, I need to push now. And so she goes, no, 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 tell her not to. No. So she comes running in, and man, the bed starts transforming. The Transformers, they got nothing on a labor and delivery bed. Stuff carts flying out of everywhere. They're calling the doctor, and they're saying, get over here now. And so she's going, you just breathe, you just calm. And she's running around. This lady's crazy, getting everything ready. And then uh, she goes to check Janie, and she goes, oh, my. And I went, what's that mean? She said, baby's crowning. He's going to be here. Or we didn't know as a, as a boy or a girl. Uh, we wanted to be surprised. She said, the baby's going to be here in a couple of minutes. And I said, can you deliver this baby? And she goes, I can, but I'd rather not. And I'm going, oh. And so I start praying, oh, dear Jesus, get this guy in here. So he, he literally runs across the parking lot. We can see his office. He runs across the parking lot, comes running in, barely gets his hands washed. They throw the little robe on him. I'm, I'm not kidding. It's all falling off everywhere. He slides into place. He actually has to push the baby back in, do the episiotomy, and then the baby comes up, and he's there. Now, Janie, Janie is not the type of person that screams. Now, I've, as a pastor, I've visited many folks in the hospital when they've had babies and stuff like that. I've been outside when women are screaming. You think they're dying in there. In fact, one of my friends when I was in Austin, uh, this, this girl was screaming so bad that I walked down the hall. I'm like, I can't listen to this stuff. I came back. She had almost bit his finger in two. She stuck it in her mouth while she, she, was think, she said, you did this to me, you know. And she was going to, Janie didn't do that. 
Janie just gets these veins and this voice, and I mean, she grits it out. She's she's a she's the toughest. I mean, that, every guy ought to you know be there when his wife's having a baby because you realize that we're weenies, men. Um, anyway, so I want you to go back to that night that Christ was born in a in a barn or in a cave to a teenage girl and a shepherd or a, a carpenter. And, and I want you to think about the scene. She's probably screaming. I'm, I'm kind of figuring that, that this, is, this is a big deal. It's not a normal night when the Son of God is born. And I want you to think about this poem, this song. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And then there's a phrase I want you to focus in on. And it says this. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I want to focus in on these words, weary world. And in fact, I want to drive this home, so I want you to say those words, weary world. One, two, three. Weary world. Weary world. If there's two words, words that can describe our society and our world, wouldn't it be weary world? Because marriages are falling apart, right? Under attack constantly. Um, Crime is on the increase. The economy, now that's a source of comfort, isn't it? Right? Every third person you meet seems to have a serious disease or they know somebody who has a serious illness. It's just crazy. Natural disasters are, are everywhere. It's almost like we're fighting just to stay above water. So I think most folks can relate to these words, weary world. But in the midst of that, the song says, something miraculous is about to happen. And gives us a thrill of hope. And if you knew the situation back then, it was not a good time to be a God follower. And then when Jesus, you know, uh, starts the church, it's not a good time to be a Christ follower. The Romans were in charge and the Romans thought everything revolved around them. And so it was actually dangerous for a Christ follower to say Jesus is Lord because the Romans taught that Caesar is Lord. And, and after a couple of hundred years of Christianity, there was actually one... Uh, Roman emperor who used Christians as human candles to light his garden parties. Can you say weary world? Can you say dangerous world? And, and in the midst of all this, Jews had believed for centuries. They'd been taught that the Messiah was going to come and he would change everything. And in the chaos of this one night, the prophecies came true. Everything would be different. And what happens on that weary night? Suddenly, the world does what, according to the song? The world rejoices. And I pray that if there's any weary world in you today, that you'll pay attention to what we're going to talk about. Because you can rejoice if you know this Savior. There's a new and glorious morning. And every time as you move forward in your life, I want you to not just think about that holy night. I want you to think about what happens the next day when the sun rises again. The Savior's been born. And the new and glorious morn means everything is different because Christ is here. What I want you to do, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage. It's in the book of Lamentations. 
Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, so it's right after Jeremiah. If you have your smartphones, it's real easy to find those things. But we're going to look at this passage, and you've got to understand where this is coming from. Lamentations actually means to cry aloud. Literal meaning is to cry aloud. Jeremiah, in, in the book of Jeremiah, he talks and he prophesies against the whole uh, Jewish nation. He says, God has said, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. If you don't pent, repent, you're going to be destroyed. Jeremiah is thrown into a pit. He's put in, in stocks. He's actually kept in house arrest. Um, he is starved at times, and he is... He has just had this horrible existence as a prophet. At, at one point, he actually shakes his finger at God and says, God, you deceived me. And he says, if I tried not to say your word, it's like a fire shut up in my bones and I have to proclaim your word. And then he gets to Lamentations. In Lamentations 586, Jerusalem has been destroyed. God had, had foretold it. The Babylonians had surrounded and they destroyed Jerusalem, burned it down. All of the political leaders are wiped out. They went into the house, the temple of God. They destroy it, took all of the, the valuable things, took it to Babylon so that Nebuchadnezzar could have his parties using the things of the living God. And so Jeremiah is left behind. Because he was obedient to God, he got a choice. He could go to Babylon or he could stay there. The Babylonians actually protected him and let him have a choice. He chose to stay behind and he's lamenting. His life is worse than anything any of us has ever faced. And I know we've got a lot of hurt in this room, but I'm telling you, here's what it would be like. Can you imagine? Well, let's read this verse and then I'll tell you this. Lamentations 3, starting in verse 19. Just thinking of my troubles and my lonely wandering makes me miserable. That's all I ever think about and I am depressed. Imagine if people who did not believe in God, or at least in the God that we believe in, came to our city Imagine if, if you could fly over our city right now and surrounding our city were armies as far as the eye could see. And their one purpose was to come and destroy our homes, take away all of our politicians, which might not be a bad thing, but we won't go there, and burn down our church buildings. Imagine you're sitting out here after the army has come. The only people they leave behind are the poorest of the poor. And the, the, the ruins of New Life Community Church and every church in Palestine are smoldering. That's how Jeremiah felt. And he says, let's read it again. Just thinking of my troubles and my lonely wandering makes me miserable. That's all I ever think about and I am depressed. But then there's this switch that flips. Look what he says. Then I remember something that fills me with hope. To remember implies that it's something in his mind. It has gone from the front of his mind to the back of his mind. And he needs to bring it back to the front. What does he need to remember? Verse 22. The Lord's kindness never fails. If, it had not been, if he had not been merciful, we would have been destroyed. He was overwhelmed with sorrow, but when he brought to the front of his mind who God is, his power, his majesty, his glory, his love, he just kind of loses himself and he says the most famous verse in all of Lamentations. Verse 23. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. You've heard the song, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. And then he says, His mercies are new every day. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I want to tell you today. If Jesus Christ, John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is the truth, if truth is a person, not a concept that you discover, you cannot know the truth of your circumstances until you have heard from Jesus Christ. You remember the disciples when they were in the boat going across the, the Sea of Galilee and the great storm came up? 
Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat. And they come and they say, Jesus, we're going to die. And Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. He stands up and he says, peace be still. Everything calmed. Not like the gradual calm that you see after a storm. Immediate calm. And it says that they worshipped him. They said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. They thought the truth according to the disciples is we are going to drown. We're going to die because this situation is so bad. When truth spoke, it rocked their world, right? So if Jesus is the truth, I don't care what you're facing right now. You cannot know the truth of your situation until you have heard from him. You see what happens? We look at our circumstances and we think we know everything that's going on. And sometimes we just declare to God, God, you're not, you don't know what's going on. I'm going to take charge. And then we get mad at God when we don't do things his way. When we don't wait for the new and glorious morn, we take matters into our own hands. And God says, if that's you, if you want to go run ahead of me, I love you enough that I'm going to let you do that and I'm going to let you suffer the consequences. Even if you confess your sin to me, I will not remove the consequences because you chose to disobey. We get mad. This is what Jeremiah did when he said, God, you deceived me. He got mad at God. God, this was supposed to be an easy task you gave me. And God said, I never said that. I just told you to obey. That's what God is telling you as well. And see, what Jeremiah is telling us here is that God always comes through, just not in our timing and not the way we think he should. So I want you to see three truths from this passage. Three things that if you'll hang on till the new and glorious morn that can apply to your life. So a new day with Christ brings exactly what you need. Now, we say this over and over, but we don't get it. So that's why we keep repeating it. I didn't say he gives you what you want. I said he gives you what you need. And usually that's a really big difference, isn't there? We think we need more. And God says, no, this is what you need. Look what Jeremiah says in verse 24. Deep in my heart I say, the Lord is all I need. I can depend on him. How many of you know that every now and then you need to be the best preacher on the planet because you need to preach to yourself, right? Because when stuff is happening and you start going, oh, woe is me. and uh, Sometimes you just need to say, no, I refuse that. I can tell you there's been times I've been attacked by the enemy and said, you're, you're worthless. You, you suck as a pastor. That you do not deserve to be up there. And there are times that I have to say, you're exactly right. Except I have a Savior who has declared me His That gives me the right. The the reason I'm a Christ follower is not because I'm good enough. It's because I realized I wasn't. You have to preach to yourself. So Jeremiah says, I say deep in my heart, the Lord is all I need. And, And here's the cool thing. In another translation, it says the Lord is my portion. What does that mean, portion? I think it goes all the way back to the Old Testament where they are wandering in the wilderness. And if you remember your story, they tried to go into the promised land. They were supposed to go in. They rejected. And then they went back after God said, don't go in there. And they got defeated. So God says, 40 years, you're going to wander in the wilderness. And they grumbled about everything. And God started providing food for them. You remember what they they had every morning when they got up? They had this stuff. They walked out of their tents. And there was this white, flaky stuff on the ground. What was that called? You know what manna means? What is it? That's, that's the literal name of the food that was on the ground. They walked out and they go, what's that? And it stuck. And so every morning they were to pick up as much food as their family needed. And God said from the beginning, take only what you need for this day. 
And so the first day, some people were obedient. They took just what they needed. And others hoarded. They got as much as they could. The next morning, you know what happened to their food? It was rotted and there were worms and maggots in it. God was reminding them, do not disobey me. Now, the interesting thing is, on the Sabbath, or before the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath, God said, collect enough for two days. Now, if you're an Israelite and you've seen that you collect more than a day's worth and it gets maggots, what are you thinking on the day before the Sabbath when you collect two days worth? You're thinking, ew. On the Sabbath, miraculously, it had not rotted. Here's what God was teaching them. You need me every day. And so what God is telling us is we need him every day. Because you remember when Jesus taught us, his disciples said, teach us to pray. And he said, pray like this. He didn't say use these words, but he said, pray like this. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our, our what? what? It doesn't say give us our weekly bread. Because most Christ followers I know, the only time they get anything from the Lord is on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Give us our one hour uh, out of 168 hours bread, Lord. Or let's, let's get even more real. Most people who claim to be Christ followers, they only go to church every Sunday. Give us our monthly bread. Give us our quarterly bread. Or our Christmas and Easter bread. Isn't that enough? God says, no. It's daily. And you need me daily. So Jeremiah said, deep in my heart I say, the Lord is all I need. And I stuck in there, today. The Lord is all I need today. And here's the thing. God is already in tomorrow. Now, I don't know about you, but... but I think it's wise to hang out with somebody, to t- converse with someone, to, to get the opinion of someone who already is in tomorrow. Does that not make sense? You're all talking to people who are just people and getting their advice. This blows my mind. Because sometimes people say, oh, I, I think I'm going to do this. And I'm like, have you talked to anybody? Well, yeah, I talked. Who'd you talk to? And they tell me and I'm like, and you're letting them give you advice? Just saying, doesn't seem very smart to me. Have you prayed about it? Well, no. Why would I do that? Because you claim to be a Christ follower. Have you read the Bible? Well, no. Why would I do that? Because you claim to be a Christ follower. And if you want Christ, you've got to make yourself available to Him. So if your marriage is struggling, it seems to me that you need to tap into God because God is in tomorrow and He's what your marriage needs. If you feel weak today, the Bible says that God perfects His strength through your weakness. Guess what? If you feel weak today, you are right where God wants you to be because you might then trust Him. Because what do we do when we're prosperous, when everything's going good? We turn our backs on God and we look and we say, look what I've done. And God says, ooh, that's a dangerous place. I can't be in that because God won't share His glory with anyone. I'm reading in the book of Daniel and I just love the book of Daniel. And uh, whenever one of Nebuchadnezzar's would, because he... he he lived past several of the Nebuchadnezzars. They were the different kings. When one would say, I know that, that you can interpret dreams, first thing Daniel said was, oh, no, 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 king. I do not interpret dreams. I know the one who does. The Most High God will reveal your dream to you. That's, I want to be that type of guy. I don't want to say that I know Jack, but I know the one who does. 
who knows everything. And he'll provide for you. If you're down and depressed today, God's in tomorrow. He will give you joy. Joy comes in the morning, the Bible says. And it says that God will be the lifter of your head. A new day with Christ always brings exactly what you need. And what you need is the presence of your heavenly father. His reality, his strength, his power, and his goodness. But a new day with Christ brings something else. Number two, the hope to keep going. I didn't write this down, but I feel like I need to say this. I've dealt with a lot of, of after effects of suicide. And, and what they taught me years ago was suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You're not allowing God to be God in your life if you take your own life. According to this scripture, what Jeremiah is saying is, I need God today and I need to wait. According to this Christmas carol, a new and glorious morning is is available, but you got to be here to see the sunrise. Don't take matters into your own hands. Lamentations 3.25 says, The Lord is good to those who hope in Him, to those who seek Him. Someone has said, and, and we can argue the, the, the whole, you know, all of this, but just get the idea behind it. Someone has said, We can live 40 days without food. We can live 7 days without water in the right conditions. We can live 4 minutes or so without oxygen, but we can only live a few seconds without hope. I believe there's a lot of people trying to find, uh, trying to survive on a hope-deprived lifestyle. They're struggling to find places to put their hope in. In fact, most people are putting their hope in the wrong place. Stock market, is that a good place to put your hope? What about your job, the place of your employment? Is that a great place to, to put your hope? What about another person? Because do they ever fail you? You may be hoping for some outcome and you think that's just what you need and then it doesn't happen and what, what happens to your faith is it's weakened. You're putting your, your hope in the wrong place. When you put your hope in the wrong place, we start to end up hopeless and we become that weary world and wonders where is anything good? What is a weary world to do? Well, the answer is again in Scripture. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold firmly to the hope that we have confessed because we can trust God to do what He's promised. I love this picture. He says, hold firmly. Uh, we went and watched uh, Skyfall and there was this, this scene where James Bond runs and he jumps on the bottom of this elevator. And this elevator is just moving on. And he's, he's been shot and he's gone through all this stuff and miraculously he lives... Anyway, it's just this unbelievable scenario. But he's hanging on and, and this thing is flying and it's about 70, 80 stories up and he starts losing his grip. And I'm thinking, dude, you're not coming back from this fall. I mean, early in the movie, he falls, and you're thinking he's dead, and then he comes back. Well, he's holding on, and he's gritting his teeth. That's the picture. He says, hold firmly to what you said you believed. Because too many people are letting go. Too many people are holding on to other things instead of the hope that they say that they have. They're grabbing on to fear and anxiety in the darkness of the night. Letting go of the truth. We're, we're holding on to anger, resentment, bitterness. And that's the source of our life, and that poisons us. And this scripture says, hold firmly to what you said you believed at the beginning and do not let go and then allow God to save you. We're going to read that verse in just a minute. But I'm going to stay right here because I think somebody here needs to hear this. Don't give up. Don't surrender. Do not quit because you have not given God the opportunity to bring that sunrise that you need. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be easy. But God says... I will provide for you. 
I will meet your needs if you'll wait. It's just amazing what a, what a day with Christ, the difference that that can make. But some people, like Judas, the difference in Judas and Peter, Judas took his life. Peter waited until the Son of God rose again and said, Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. Re- totally restored him. Was Peter more worthy than Judas? Not in, not in my book. He failed and cursed. I don't know that man. But he waited until the new morning brought new joy. There's a third thing that a new day with Christ brings, and that's the help you're seeking. Verse 26 says this, It is good to wait patiently for the Lord to save, of, save us. Some of you here, this is talking about the salvation of your souls when you step from hell-bound to heaven-bound. There is a line, and only you can cross it. We can do everything we can to bring you up to that line, tell you everything about Christ, but you have to step across that line of faith. When, when um, I took Janie home to meet my, my parents, and my, I took her over to meet my best friend's parents, uh, I had never... My best friend and I were so different. He brought every girl he ever dated. I mean, he met a girl at the park when he was in college. He'd take her home. I never took anyone home because that was going to be the symbol to me and everyone else that this was serious. So when I take her to my best friend's house, his dad pulls me aside and he goes, why is this one different than, than any others? Why would you bring her home? And I said, man, she's just persistent. She waited me out until I realized what a good find I had. <laughs> and, and he brought her, uh, he, he told me that, that it's a good thing that I was patient and that she was patient because I wasn't going to find one any better than her. Some of you need salvation of your souls. You've come right up to the line of faith and we've told you about it, but you have to step across that line. When I brought Janie home, that was me saying, I'm going to propose to this girl. And then I followed through, and I got the ring to prove it. I stood there and I said, I give my life to you, and I accept your life in return. That's what it is to become a Christ follower. You say, I give my life to you, and I accept your life in return. Now, some of you have already been in the family of God. What you need to be is saved from a difficult situation. You cannot fathom the difference one day with Christ can make. Lazarus in the New Testament... Bible tells us he was dead four days. He was dead so long that he stunk. And the, and the King James Version said it best. It said, he stinketh. You know you're dead and you know you're bad off if the King James Version says you stinketh. And so when Jesus shows up, he walks out to the grave and they're going, no, no, no. And he says, roll the stone away. And then he walks up and he says, hey, Lazarus, come out, buddy, come forth. Lazarus pops up, comes out, and Jesus said, get rid of his grave clothes. And I bet Lazarus would say, it's amazing the difference one day with Christ can make. There was a woman who for 12 years suffered with an issue of blood. She literally had a period for 12 solid years. She had given all of her money to doctors, everything that she had. She was destitute. Can you imagine? She's thinking, the first day she's thinking, wow, this is not good. After 28 days, she's thinking, this is really not good. After 12 years, she's hopeless. And she's declared unclean. And so she hears about Jesus coming by. She walks out, finds him, touches the little fringe of his garment, of his robe that was back behind him. And the the amazing thing is there was this huge crowd around Jesus. Jesus walking along. She touches the hem of his garment. Jesus stops and he said, who touched me? And his disciples are going, what? There are thousands of people here and you said one person. Jesus could tell the difference of a touch of faith and the touch of the crowd. He said, power went out from me. And this woman comes trembling forward. And he says, your faith has saved you. 
I bet she would tell you there's an incredible difference one day with Jesus can make. One man for 38 years, he was unable to walk and he would, he would, his friends would take him to the pool of Bethesda. It was this pool and there was all these legends and things going on. 38 years from the time of his birth until he met Jesus one day, he could not walk. And so you can think about these legs, 38 year old legs that have never supported a body. There's no muscles. There's no anything there. Jesus said, hey dude, pick up your mat and walk. Heck, I could just imagine muscles forming on his body. And I think he looks down and he picks up his mat and he walks off. And I bet this guy would say, you cannot imagine the difference one day, one second what Jesus Christ can make if you will wait until he shows up. Some of you, you're in a weary world right now. And my message today is to tell you that there's a thrill of hope. If you'll wait until you have that experience with Jesus Christ. You may look at your marriage and think it, it could never be what it's, it should be. I'm just telling you. It's amazing the difference that Christ can make. Some of you are sick in body. Or you love someone who's sick in their body. And I'm telling you that God is able to heal him. But even if God does not heal them the way we think he should. He's able. And he can sustain you in the midst of your physical ailments. But most of us don't even wait. We don't even, we don't even cry out to him. Some of you, you're in the night. There's no epidural for your pain. And some of you are screaming on the inside. You're in the middle of all this darkness and pain. You need to be reminded that joy comes in the morning. A new and glorious hope. What you need is one day with Jesus Christ. Let me finish with this. Romans 13, 11 says, You know what sort of times we live in, and so you should live properly. It is time to what? The church of the living God has been asleep for too long. The church called New Life Community Church is asleep. It's time to wake up. You know that the day when we will be saved is nearer now than when we first put our faith in the Lord. For some of you, that is your first time salvation is going to happen today. For some of you, you've walked away from God and you know that you've turned your back on God and you need to to turn around and come running back to Him. The night is almost over. The sun always rises. The Son of God is risen because He was born into this weary world. There's hope. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that in Your presence, right now as we come before Your throne, that Your Holy Spirit would minister to Your people. And every time, God, that we worship you through this carol, this O Holy Night, we'll be reminded that a new day with Christ can bring more than we could possibly imagine. So, Father, we want to give our hearts and our lives to you again. If you, if you are not a Christ follower, you know you're not in the family of God. The Bible says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's how we do it here. If in your heart you mean this, you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I need Jesus to save me. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin and lead my life. It's real simple. Some of you need to pray that prayer. God, I know I'm a sinner. And I need a savior. As best I know how. I give you my life. And I ask for your life in return.
And then quite honestly, there's a lot of us here who, who claim to be Christ followers, but if we were taken to a court of law tomorrow and they were to bring evidence about whether we're real Christ followers or not, there would not be enough evidence to convict us of being Christ followers. I'm just here to declare to you right now that is wrong. Do not embarrass your Savior. You need to turn from your sin. And so 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just. He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So maybe you need to say, God, I've blown it. I've turned away from you for the nine millionth time. I'm coming back today. Lord, make a difference. We pray in the name of your son who was born that holy night. Amen.